Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today I'm going to play a recording of last Monday's live salon where attorney Gary Smith joined us for a, another update of some current legal aspects of the war on drugs. And we also talked about his encyclopedia of drug laws from the international to local jurisdictions. This new book of his, Psychedelica Lex, is not just a valuable resource for lawyers. It can also be very worthwhile for local psychedelic societies to use as uh, well as background for some of their discussions. We seem to uh, be undergoing a sea change in the public attitude about the potential for psychedelics in treating mental illnesses, as well as about the benefits of cannabis. And this shift in public opinion is finally being reflected in the attitudes of many officials in legal and regulatory agencies. A new day is dawning, and now is the time to keep building the momentum of legalization at every opportunity you have. So here's our conversation with attorney Gary Smith about the current state of legal affairs in the so-called war on drugs. And like you, I say so-called war on drugs because, well, no drugs are being injured in this war. It's a war on people. This nation has declared a war on a significant percentage of its own citizens. So uh, let's keep on pushing to stop this madness. Well, welcome, Gary. Well, thank you for having me back. I appreciate it. <clears throat> you know, I I, uh, I guess so much has been happening lately. I, it seems like you were here like over a year ago. It was just last October. But I guess yeah. that's almost a year already, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's so funny you're saying that. I Just before I walked in the room, I was chatting with my wife about the fact that um, <laughs> the pandemic has completely skewed both of our, our senses of time. Um her mom got remarried a year ago and I was telling her, I thought it was three months ago. That's how <laughs> it's been. Um, so yeah, the last year is just a blur, but so much has been going on. Yeah. That, that, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot going on, uh, in, in the whole world of psychedelics. I, I saw an article today about, uh, Harvard even is, uh, really getting reinvolved. Yeah, yeah, that article just came out last week. Um, they are starting to study uh, anew the uh, question of legality and ethics in in this new emerging area of medicine. So, uh, so, so you know, you say that the the the, uh, the last year seems like three months to you. So, uh, what all has happened in the last three months in the world of psychedelic law, huh? <laughs> um, okay, in in no particular order or hierarchy. Um, amongst other things, uh, the world of investment right now is just going bonkers. Most of the activity for investment is taking place on the Canadian stock exchange. Uh, just the Canadian laws are just way more liberal. Um, you'll also, if, if anybody's into the cannabis scene, you'll, you'll notice most of the cannabis stocks are traded on the Canadian stock exchange. Um, the U.S. stock exchange is starting to warm a little bit. There are a few uh, domestic psychedelic companies that are doing fundraising right now on the U.S. exchange. But yeah, Canada's by vast margin leading, leading the charge. Um, part of what is also happening in the great wider world of, of this new scientific FDA approved universe, um, 
the Caribbean, turns out, is the hot spot in the world for study right now. And the reason for that is most of the countries in the Caribbean have a little more relaxed uh, regulation and attitude towards the study. And as a result, a lot of companies are trying to set up shop there uh, in order to conduct these studies to try to get FDA approval, et cetera. Uh, let's see, other things going on. There is a new Psychedelics Bar Association. I, really? Not, really? Not, there, there is. I'm not one of the founders. I'm not a board member. I'm friends with them. Uh, but a bunch of folks uh, were working behind the scenes and have started up a Psychedelic Bar Association. And it just is getting started right now. So if we have any fellow lawyers who are on the salon this evening, um, if you just Google, I think it's psychedelicsbar.org or something plainly obvious like that, uh, you'll find it. And they're taking signups right now. They've already done, I think, two, possibly three initiation ceremonies. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in the first one. Um, oh, somebody just posted the uh, listing in the chat. Thanks, uh, Agnar. Um, anyway, yeah, if anybody was curious, just go to the little chat thing. You'll find the link to that website. Uh, and they're still taking signups. So if anybody wants to join the association, they can. You know, when, when uh, I, I haven't practiced law since the 1970s, but back then in Texas, it was hard to even find somebody to defend somebody who was charged with a marijuana charge, you know. So yeah. uh, this is a long, uh, big steps, you know, that my, my only uh, little, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, uh, revolt is I'm still a member of the Texas Bar Association. Uh, inactive member. I haven't kept up my uh, credit, you know, my study credits, but uh, my little uh, revolt is that my picture on the Texas Bar uh, uh, website is a picture I had taken at Burning Man. So (laughs) in my straw hat, I'm about the only one without a coat and tie on that (laughs) website. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, Yeah, that's uh, Texas is, um, you know, just one of multiple states where uh, this weirdness extends. Um, I understand that, uh, of all things, Senator Ted Cruz is a little open to the study of psychedelics for veterans. Um, the Department of Defense is a huge supporter of psychedelic studies. You know, we have so many psychically wounded veterans right now who, you know, conventional medicine just doesn't do much for them. So to that extent, yeah, if you still have Texas connections, hit up uh, Senator Cruz, see if he can't relax some more Texas law for us. <laughs> and not that it's not already relaxed in some of the wrong ways, but <laughs> yeah, fair. Well, a completely deregulated energy grid so that you have blackouts and no power during the heat of summer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, uh, the discussion on, uh, about, uh, corporations getting involved in psychedelics. Uh, I'm sorry. Last Thursday, uh, uh, Leonard, uh, Picard was here who has actually you know, been a major, uh, uh, subject of the war on, on drugs. And he apologized. He, he couldn't be here tonight, but uh, he has been uh, involved in consulting with some of these companies. And we talked to him Thursday about that because, uh, you know, we've all been kind of concerned about these companies. And he at yeah. least uh, reassured us that at least in a few of them he's worked with, the top people seem uh, not necessarily uh, uh, number one or, or equal to number one with profit. They were also in, in uh, worried about the, the psychedelic or psychological and spiritual aspects of it too. So it, it, you know, we've been concerned that it's all been Philip Morris and money and stuff like that. So yeah. uh, 
I don't know what you've heard about that. Uh, yeah, um, I can absolutely comment on that. And you're not wrong. It's an absolute fair criticism, Lorenzo. Um, you've got to consider that right now, the, the money that's being attracted towards psychedelics is principally coming from people who want to replace the current medications that are out there for people with mental illness and substitute it with these psychedelics. They're... Um, altruism, I guess I'll use that word, is a little bit in doubt in some instances, but I'm absolutely banging into people on the scene who are interested in psychedelics for the right reasons and uh, some who even have a spiritual motivation behind it. But we're talking raw naked capitalism at its most brutal right now. And and that is predominantly what's going on out there. And, and I can explain a little bit of what's behind that. Um, and by the way, I'm going to be um, speaking on a panel in November in Las Vegas on this as well. Uh, I just got invited to join the uh, DELIC conference taking place in Las Vegas. So this will be a little preview. Um, so to explain what's happening in, in the world of investment right now in psychedelics, which is completely different than the world of, of um, religious entheogenic use. And by the way, there's a lot of litigation going on there. So we'll double back a little bit in the conversation. I'll talk about that, too. But the world of psychedelics right now is pursuing patents, they, they, these investments, these uh, securities that are being offered, and these capital raises that are going on is to promote research. And these companies are looking to lock up patents because that's the only thing they can financially exploit. You know, the natural stuff, the mushrooms that just grow up out of the ground you can't patent that. You can't grab a piece of nature and run to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office and say, hey, I found this. It's mine. Give me exclusivity. You only get patents for unique invention. So these scientific groups are trying to do things like find a new form of the molecule, find a new way of delivering the molecule, find a new way of suspending the molecule, finding a way to modify the molecule so that it maybe has a slightly different effect or, um, invent companion molecules that can maybe terminate a trip, which is actually useful, by the way. I'm not, I'm not opposed to this research. I think it's actually a very positive thing because um, it'll make psychedelics more accessible to more people in a greater variety of ways. My worry is it loses its soul along the way, but to make these substances more accessible medically to people who need them just on a medical basis, you need to find ways, for example, to be able to terminate a trip if they're having a really bad one, or just to be able to drive home. Because, you know, depending on what you're taking, that could be a six-hour commitment in somebody's office or at their location. And not everybody's going to be able to accommodate that or, or afford it or be able to do it. So that's what's going on right now. They're trying to lock up patents on ways to make what happens in nature unique and also ways to make that uh, slightly better or medically efficacious. And that's, that's what we're seeing right now. Um, the problem, like you'll, you'll notice in Oregon, which just in the last general election passed the psilocybin program law, first ever in the country, by the way, um, there have been some pharmaceutical companies who have been taking pot shots at that because they perceive this as a direct competition. I completely disagree. I think the modern FDA, you know, Western medicine track actually would be supported by the more um, entheogenic track and vice versa. I think they don't dwell in the same trenches and I think that they could actually help to bolster one another. So one of my other crazy little side projects that I'm getting started is what is going to be affectionately known as the uniform plant and fungi medicine act. Um, 
And the idea came to me because of the, the last general election. If you notice around the country, there were, I think, seven drug-based initiatives that were on the ballot during the general election, and they all passed. Um, oh, well, there you go. So <laughs> thank you for pulling that up. Uh, yeah, I actually published an article on this. So if anybody's not aware, um, there are two articles that are published on Psychedelics Today that I, I talk about this uh, crazy idea of mine. And the basis for it is that while I'm looking out and seeing that little cities in some states are opening to this idea, there's nothing between them that's identical. So, you know, when Denver passes an ordinance, that's great for Denver, but it doesn't do anything for anybody outside of Denver. Likewise, Oregon psilocybin program, again, fantastic, great for Oregon, doesn't do anything for anybody outside of Oregon. So seeing that this psychedelic awakening is happening across the country, and it's gaining momentum, I thought, why don't we try to bake in some uniformity right out of the gate and also craft a body of law that anybody in, in a legislature, if they had the will, could grab it and present it in their legislature as a possible model to be adopted. And for the lucky people in the 14 states in the country who have the ability to pursue a public initiative, which is a way of completely sidestepping your legislature to pass a law, you could also grab this and run this in a, in a political campaign to get a public initiative passed using that body of law. So that's going to be uh, coming. We're starting work on it, hopefully, in the next few months. Um, I'm also having a, a better website built for my uh, universe here. I've got a dumb little website up for the book, but it's expanding beyond that. So we're going to be hosting the Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act on that website. And I'm going to be trying to put a lot of data about it very public facing so that the world can, if it wants to, participate in the effort and also see what we're doing, because I'm trying to lend some transparency and legitimacy to that project. I, I put a link to your website and to your book, uh, as well as that uh, article in chat, and so they can get that. I'll, I'll put it on the program notes as well. Thanks. Uh, also, you said something uh, earlier that I hadn't, uh, I hadn't heard at all before, is that you said there's a lot of research going on in, in the Caribbean now, and that's something I, didn't, I wasn't aware of. Yeah, I, I, I really wasn't either until just a few months ago, um, as I've been talking to more people about um, these different opportunities, I've been seeing lots of people pointing in that direction. Um, in fact, in, in the news, there's uh, a company called Silo. They study psilocybin naturally. Uh, they've got a big thing going on in Jamaica. In fact, I've read an article, I think about 10 days ago, they cut a deal with the Bob Marley estate and they're putting out a line of non-psychoactive mushroom-based nutraceuticals as a way of introducing more, uh, shall we say, medicated products down the line. But they're also hosting psilocybin retreats there, et cetera. I, I see Mike, Mike has come in and Mike, you have experience, don't you, with uh, you know, the medicine in, in the Caribbean? Uh, do you know anything about that? <laughs> I, I have experience with teaching medical school at Caribbean islands. Uh, I met numerous researchers there. I never met anyone that was doing psychedelic research, but I haven't been back to the islands in five or six years. So uh, I'm sure they're picking up on the spirit of the, of what's going on. Yeah. You might, might put out feelers to any associates you still have down there. I'd, I'd be curious to know about it. In fact, that, Yeah. That definitely caught me by surprise, and I'll be checking things out. Yeah, I, I think it's the Gwyneth Paltrow effect, candidly. Uh, a couple of years ago, she did one of the episodes of her show doing a psilocybin retreat, I think, in Jamaica. 
Don't quote me on that, but I think I'm right. Uh, and apparently that just was like the tipping point. So, well, I, I hadn't, hadn't heard that, but, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting to know. And, and of course, you know, that there's a, a lot of research being done all over the world. I don't think the U.S. is the leader in it anymore. Oh, by no means, by no means. You know, Johns Hopkins is doing great things. And and as we started off the conversation today, you know, Harvard's actually taking up the philosophical issues, which is great. Um, so, you know, more is coming every day, and I'm very encouraged. Um, other things going on around the country right now. Um, my, my, my friend Catherine Tucker has filed a lawsuit up in Washington State under Washington's right to try laws. And what that's about uh, the right to try laws allow patients who are terminally ill to experiment with unapproved drugs. There's an application process, and essentially the, the thing that they would want to try has to be somewhere on FDA's radar. It can't just be, hey, I found something at a hardware store. Let's give it a shot. Um, but if it's on FDA's radar but not yet at full approval, there's an application process you can go through to allow that terminally ill patient special permission to engage, as well as allowing their doctor and pharmacist to administer. And the lawsuit that's taking place right now regards some terminally ill can uh, cancer patients who are wanting to use psilocybin as a palliative, just to give them some better presence in their final days, because they're diagnosed terminally ill, they're not going to survive this, and there's no cure anybody can offer, but all they're asking is for a chance to try something that might improve their quality for whatever time is left. And crazy, crazy, DEA stepped in and said no. <laughs> so they've sued DEA. That's a lawsuit pending right now in the federal courts, seeking to enjoin DEA from stepping in the middle. And the essential core argument in that case, amongst many, is that DEA has absolutely no regulatory authority whatsoever on medical decisions. And by refusing to grant the right to try access, that's exactly what DEA is doing, is rendering a medical decision on behalf of a terminally ill patient and their physician. That's, that's really an interesting uh, approach to it, uh, because, you know, uh, until uh, you just are talking about that, I was thinking that, you know, the religious approach is really what everybody's been using. I know they've, they've, it's been unsuccessful a lot of times and successful. And, and you actually represent one of the, the largest, the oldest peyote church, right? Peyote Way Church of God here in Wilcox, Arizona. And, and so the religious exemption isn't now the only one. There's the, the, the medical approach as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this is, this is virgin territory, and I think it's going to do spectacularly well. Here's why. Not only is this Washington case filed and pending, I think nine, maybe 14, I can't remember the number, but at least nine different states' attorneys general filed an amici brief in support of the petitioner against the DEA, arguing that this was 100% a state's rights issue that DEA had no authority to involve itself in. So when you've got multiple states' attorneys general taking that position, and by the way, you want to know how crazy that gets? Arizona's attorney general is one of the amici. <laughs> My own home state here, a very conservative place. We, uh, you know, the legislature is very anti-drug everything. Uh, and even then, our attorney general stepped in and said, yeah, DEA has no voice here. So you've, that's, been, you've that's, been rubbing off on the legal community there, Gary. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd love to think so. Um, I'm, I'm still dedicated at some point to making a run at trying to bring uh, legality to psilocybin here in Arizona. I don't know if 2022 is going to be the year, but uh, I'm still definitely pushing towards it. 
Now, how, how do you feel about that? Like in, in uh, the legality of it in, in uh, Oregon, I know that there, we've, we've had some debates here about, uh, you know, anybody could open a clinic or maybe they couldn't. And, and how, how, how do you feel about uh, when you say the legality, what are you meaning specifically about uh, how, how would you go about legalizing yeah, uh, and that's an excellent question because you're right. There are so many diverse points of view on this, and and they range from where we are now, which is total prohibition, and at the opposite end of that spectrum is no regulation at all, just a completely unregulated free for all. I don't advocate the unregulated free for all. Um, I feel a little conflicted because my heart, I would love for there to be no regulation. I would love for people to just do whatever they want, trusting that they'll be responsible and not do stupid things in stupid ways. But the reality is uh, that's just not how most people work. And if you just advocate for a free-for-all, you are simply replacing one problem with a new set of problems. So this, this is right at the sweet spot of why I'm advocating the Uniform Plant and Fungi Medicine Act, because I think that to get all of the people on the no side of the room, at least over to the maybe side of the room, and that's what you need if you're going to lever politics here, You've got to give them some assurance, some um, safety measures, protocols, regulations, et cetera. And, and we've seen over at least the last decade across most of the United States with cannabis, that's worked out pretty okay. I don't think any state's cannabis program is perfect, but you know, crime didn't explode, drug abuse didn't explode, murders didn't spike, uh, none of that happened. And in point of fact, most people are doing much better than before prohibition started to lift. So I think inside of a regulated model where maybe people have to get some education before they can partake, I'd be comfortable with that. And, and I think it's also consistent with history. You know, you go all the way back to like, I don't know, the Eleusinian Mysteries, you know, that was a world that didn't have these regulations. But still, if you wanted to engage in that activity, you had to go to a certain place, behave a certain way, and be led by others who were senior to you in the form of priestesses. Um, so if you adapt that sort of ethos to it, I think there's plenty of room to get all the no people to say, okay, maybe a little bit, maybe we'll try this. Um, so that, that's where I think it, it has to go next. And then from there, look, if, if the sky doesn't fall and Chicken Little proves to be wrong, you can relax the rules further. And, and like you just said, in, in the deregulation of cannabis, uh, it's, it's, you know, irregular across the country, uh, I, state by state. And no, no one of them is one that I think is perfect or even, you know, that close to it. But over, overall, there's so many different variables. And yet, overall, there's not been a huge problem. And I think that speaks well for it, that we're, uh, we have, a, at least in this country, uh, with the state regulations, a, a way to test various and, and sundry things. And actually, you know, there may be different regulations for different cultures in different parts of the country, too. I, I don't know. It's a big country. Yeah, absolutely. Because you've got so many competing interests who want to have a voice and want to be protected. I'll give you a great example. California right now has a decrim bill rolling around inside its legislature aimed at just making most of these substances state legal. Amongst things they could have included but made a conscious choice not to was to permit home cultivation of peyote, which is kind of near and dear to my heart because of my affiliation with the church here. And um, I know in speaking with the, with the church seniors, they feel very strongly that California should permit peyote cultivation. 
But because certain legislature members who were drafting that bill had some connections with the Native American church and, and had some conversations with them, the decision was made to exclude peyote from the items that could be home cultivated on premise that they were trying to be respectful to the Native American church and belief in peyote's spiritual nature, which the Peyote Way Church of God also supports, but has a bigger agenda. And that is literally the protection and preservation of peyote. So what we believe is, yes, home cultivation for peyote should be in that bill and should be permitted because this cactus is deeply threatened right now. Uh, between human incursion and climate change, its territory is diminishing, as are its numbers. So if we can get people home cultivating it, not only will that reduce poaching, it'll also increase the, the viability of the genetics. Well, that's, that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense when you, you say it that way. And, and it makes me feel good about my, my little peyote plants that I've been nurturing for the last 15 years here. Yeah. And, and for those of you, by the way, who don't have experience with peyote, it takes 30 years for that plant to mature. If you're growing from seed, I mean, you, you got to plan when you're in high school because uh, you're not going to be visiting that plant for decades. It takes an egregiously long time. And that's part of its fragility. Uh, also, it's a spineless cactus. Its only defense mechanism happens to be the mescaline inside of it. So it really needs human help desperately. Are, are there uh, other questions that are arising here? I don't want to dominate everything here. I know that <clears throat> we've had a lot of discussions about some of these issues. So uh, anybody care to join in here? Yeah, I'm checking the chat room to see what people are saying. Okay. Um, other things I can tell you about. Um, let, let's talk a bit about the spiritual side. So there are a few lawsuits pending right now um, by ayahuasca churches that are taking on the DEA uh, pretty aggressively. Uh, for those of you who might know about the ayahuasca churches generally, the last few decades, there have been a, a couple of Supreme Court cases on ayahuasca where the Supreme Court has affirmed the entheogenic use of ayahuasca for certain organizations. And the ayahuasca churches are uh, making a huge inroad in the U.S. right now, I think fueled in part by the fact that the Supreme Court recognized the religiosity behind the practice. And um, I just did a, a little review a couple of weeks ago on the DEA denial letter to the SoulQuest Church based out of Florida. And the short story for those of you who aren't in the know, and by the way, I'll say up front, I don't know all the details. I, I just have pieces of that file myself. But apparently in 2017, the SoulQuest parent organization had applied to DEA for recognition of religious exemption. And four years later, yep, four years later, DEA finally responded and said no. Uh, after taking a litany of data from SoulQuest, multiple interviews of multiple members, Four years later, just said, no, nah, we don't think you're an actual religion and you're not getting the exemption. So SoulQuest right now is in the midst of litigation over that. Um, and I'll explain a little bit of the detail behind what I do know. So the, the heart of DEA's denial of SoulQuest's request for exemption is premised on DEA's belief that SoulQuest isn't an actual religion. And the reason SoulQuest had even reached out to DEA to request exemption is because they were having trouble, like most every other ayahuasca church does, during the importation of ayahuasca from outside of the country. You know, DEA and U.S. Customs will, as part of their normal duties, this is not abnormal behavior for either of those agencies, 
involve itself in what's coming across the border. And on the question of religious organizations, um, DEA had put out a rather extensive application form saying, hey, if, if you want us, DEA, to allow your importation and access, et cetera, you've got to fill out all this paperwork and also justify and explain what the religious basis is, et cetera. Um, here's the problem with that, though. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act places the burden on the government whenever the government wants to regulate religious freedom. And that's the turning point right now that's taking place in these cases. These ayahuasca churches are turning around and saying, hey, wait a minute. We have a First Amendment religious freedom that should be, in effect, prime or prime over whatever the regulatory environment is. So when we're coming and saying, hey, we want to import or interact with ayahuasca, we shouldn't have to be proving the validity of our religion to a police organization. That, that's just weird and creepy. That would be like Catholics having to justify Eucharist to a police officer. It's no different. And, you know, we would never abide that practice. So why should these religions have to have a police agency determine and rule on its religiosity? Um, so that's, I think, the real pivot point for those cases right now. It sounds like they, they might have a, a, a foot in the door a little bit there. That sounds like a, a, a crack, maybe. Yeah, on the legal side, yes. Um, on the factual side, I really don't know. You know, DEA in their denial letter really took SoulQuest to task on the facts of their their religious practice, pretty much flat out saying they didn't believe SoulQuest was a religious organization and they didn't believe it was a religion. And again, I, I don't have the case file, so yeah. I can't speak to those details. But assuming SoulQuest could get in front of a judge and and overcome that, yeah, I think they've got the better legal argument, to be quite candid. I don't know if they went on the facts, but on the law, I think they could. How, how far along are those cases right now? Um, still fairly in their infancy, still fairly young. And they're in the state of Washington? Uh, no, the SoulQuest case, uh, I believe, comes out of Florida, their, uh, their home base. The right to try cases out of Washington State. Okay. Well, it'll be fascinating to see how those come along, but it'll, it'll be a while, I assume. Oh, for sure. But I'm actually really encouraged. Um, you know, during the Trump administration, he got opportunity to put three justices on the Supreme Court, all super conservative. Uh, I don't personally politically swing that way, so I cringed a little bit as it was happening. But in a really weird way, it's like the best Supreme Court ever for psychedelic religions, because they, they these justices do really skew towards taking the First Amendment deadly seriously. And I think they absolutely would warm to the notion that the DEA shouldn't be literally ruling on what is or isn't religion. So I think by the time these cases work their way through the trial courts, work their way through the appellate levels at the whatever circuit they're in, and make a run for certiorari at the Supreme Court, I think they've got a fair shot at getting it. But, you know, that's, that's uh, uh, a nice take on that, a positive look, because I've been quite a, kind of negative about the court. You know, I think there's six of them are, are practicing Catholics right now. And so you know, yeah. I've, I've been a little upset about that, but uh, I, I had never thought about it as far as the freedom of religion. They, they may want to protect that. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'll tell you what really encouraged me. Um, a couple of things. Number one, we had a case come out uh, almost a year ago now called Tonzin versus Tomvir and Supreme Court case. And it established 
that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act allows for money damages against government agents. So if you're a religion that is being impacted by DEA, and let's say, for example, they're not letting you have your ayahuasca or they're arresting people and they shouldn't, you may legitimately be able to sue those officers in their personal capacity for money damages under RIFRA. That was mind-blowing. And RIFRA has been around for years. Nobody realized you can pursue damages. So that's a game changer. Um, The other thing, too, that is very encouraging about this court, weirdly enough, again, another benefit of pandemic, were all the religion cases that came out over the last year because of all the church closings. You know, multiple governors around the country were entering orders to shut all public accommodation to try to stem the spread of COVID. And this included shutting down churches and a bunch of these religious organizations sued. And a few of these cases have worked their way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the court's been deciding in favor of the religious freedom. So, yeah, it's wacky, but this might be the best Supreme Court ever for psychedelics. You know, I I have to admit, you know, whenever I read news about the court uh, ruling on some uh, religious freedom thing, you know, I just see the headlines and I kind of cringe. Uh, but now I'm kind of looking forward to it. I've never, I, you know, it's the law of unintended consequences, I guess. Uh, yeah, let, let me blow your mind a little further. You know who Ken Starr is, right? Sure. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Ken Starr put out a book about four or five months ago doing this really, I have to say, fantastic survey of First Amendment, religion, law, and the Supreme Court. Um, and he was coming through uh, the different bar organizations promoting the book. So he did a continuing education seminar here in Arizona, which I participated in and got to ask him a question at the end about psychedelic religions. And damn it all, if he didn't end up answering my question positively, Uh, he was very encouraging. And I will say the book is actually well-written. If you don't know much at all about the first amendment and Supreme court cases, this is the book for you. It's, it's, it encapsulates and summarizes all the major cases. Now, I will say, you know, Ken Starr does use it as a platform to also advocate his political views, which is fine. It's his book. I have no quarrel with that. But if you can overlook that and just read the book for its content, it's really a good read. I can't say enough good about it. Well, that's, that's a, a nice uh, recommendation. And, you know, of course, uh, I, I'm an old reader of the IF Stone Weekly, and, and he, he never read anything that agreed with him. He always read the opposition. So uh, that's probably a good recommendation on two levels that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you consider like the, the, um, the history of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, um, the backstory of that comes out of um, the, the Smith v. Oregon case, which was a peyote case. And this was the case in which Justice Scalia, back when he was alive, had ripped away the standard of review the Supreme Court had used for decades. And within two years, the public was so freaked out by that, Congress drafted and passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the number of disparate and different religious organizations that all came out and joined together in support of that was unprecedented. Groups that in no circumstance ever would have come together all came together for this. And I think if we get a good Supreme Court challenge on some of these issues, it'll happen again. Well, that's that's very encouraging, very encouraging. Uh, you know, to kind of shift the discussion just a little bit, uh, since there's no immediate questions here, uh, if, if I was, you know, a young law student right now, uh, and I was living in California, and I had legally smoked cannabis, and I thought, hey, this is a pretty good thing, 
and uh, I, I'm looking at ways to get into law, and I want to I want to get involved in in uh, working uh, uh, to bring an end to the war on drugs and get involved in all this. What direction? How do young lawyers get involved in this? Because obviously, you know, they have not much sway in a in a firm when they come out of law school. Uh, sure. Um, boy, that that is a seminar unto itself. <laughs> um, first off, to to the to the law students and young lawyers out there, um, know that there's no one path. There are so many different paths you can take. Doing a solo shop, working inside a different firm, and building a department for them. Um, finding different organizations that maybe want in-house counsel for assistance. Even these um, burgeoning psychedelics pharmaceutical companies are, are, you know, raising enough capital that they actually do want to hire in-house lawyers. Because frankly, if you're doing a lot of legal work, it's way cheaper to have one on the payroll than to hire an outside lawyer. So, so in, 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 in uh, thinking about hiring an outside lawyer, uh, you know, we all live in various uh, parts of the country here uh, and, and on Thursday all over the, the world. But uh, here in the U.S., when when somebody has a friend that calls them and says, hey, I just got arrested for this, that or the other thing have to do with either psychedelics or MDMA or cannabis. Uh, how do I find a lawyer? Uh, and if they don't happen to live in your hometown, how, how, how do you tell people to? To find a lawyer that that has some idea of what what uh, either psychedelic law or cannabis law is all about. Yeah, for for sure. So you're, you're right. Finding a good criminal defense lawyer who's versed in these issues is a little difficult, um, particularly if you're wanting to do, for example, a defense based on a religious argument, uh, or you've got some other just not normal run of the mill argument. It, it is hard because there's no. Well, I shouldn't say no. There are very few lawyers out there who are openly advertising that they provide these services. So your fallback is most likely to go find yourself a good cannabis defense lawyer. For example, um, Normal is a, is a huge organization with a tremendous legal panel, and they they will help to pair you with a lawyer who does this kind of defense work. Now, in fairness to that, you're still going to want to interview that person to make sure they are the right lawyer for you. And you're going to want to ask important questions like, do you have specific experience defending against this substance or these particular kind of facts? Well, that's, that's excellent advice. It, and, you know, all of a sudden it just dawned on me, Gary, that <laughs> here, here I'm interviewing an author and I haven't even brought up your book yet. Oh, <laughs> and and, and let me, let me, let me just preface this. It, this is like talking to Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first dictionary. <laughs> this is the first, and as far as I know, still only in, in English, at least, uh, encyclopedia of psychedelic law and, and globally. It's, uh, plus, look at that. It's a law book. Look at the cover in that. Can you, can oh, you imagine that in your law library? Isn't that amazing? Uh, I, if, if I was still practicing law, I'd just have to buy one just to have it in my library on, on, uh, on display. So I appreciate that. And, and in fairness to the comment, I mean, the cover was absolutely deliberate. I, I wanted to have something just visually grabbing that also in, Encapsulated the spirit, so I think who, I knew. Who, who did the cover for you? Uh, a local artist by the name of Eric Cox. Um, he is just tremendous. He does a lot of uh, murals around the cities here. Um, he's done a number of magazine covers. Uh, the way this particular cover came about, pure accident. I was texting with a buddy of mine saying, "Hey, I'm on the home stretch on this book. 
I need a cover. Do you have any recommendation for some art? He sent me that picture <laughs> and said, do you want something like this? And I said, no, I want that. So within like 12 hours, I'm on the phone with Eric negotiating the rights to the, to the picture. That, that, that is, first of all, it's a beautiful picture. And, and oh, absolutely for, for a lawyer, somebody that's a lawyer, you know, it's a double beauty because, you know, I could have that picture in my law office, you know, on display because it's a book. I actually own the original painting. So I, I would hold on, on a wall here at the house. <laughs> but t- tell us a little bit about the book. Cause you know, it's not one that's that, readable from end to end it's it's um, more of a reference but it is a readable end and if you want to get some history of this law yeah it's it's a lot of different things so the the basic story behind the book was i was on vacation for my 50th birthday and we had taken a trip to europe and i'm, I'm laying in bed jet lagged as hell because we had jumped i think like seven different time zones and i couldn't sleep and so the only thing available to me because i'm sitting there awake was my phone and luckily we had internet so I'm just doing some dumb little research on, on psychedelics, thinking to myself, you know, I want to really expand my practice into this. Let me go find some books to better educate myself. And after a couple of hours, I couldn't find the damn book because nobody wrote it. So that is literally the genesis of this book. Nobody wrote it, so I had to. And so the content of it, it's, it's not a deep dive on any particular subject. Rather, it's a survey of all the different subjects one would want to know when entering into anything dealing with psychedelic law. And uh, amongst chapters, I include uh, basics on things like the international treaties that affect psychedelics, uh, the basic federal laws like the Controlled Substances Act. Um, I've got chapters that would predict and project out if these were illicit businesses, what would the challenges be? And what I'm doing is borrowing my last decade of experience in cannabis law. So for example, one of the things that continues to vex cannabis, actually two of the things that continue to vex cannabis, you can't file bankruptcy if you're a cannabis business. So whatever debts you incur, it's the legal equivalent of herpes. You're going to have them for life uh, because there's no escaping it. And, And then the other thing is IRS regulation 280E, which says that these Businesses that sell Schedule One substances are not permitted the ordinary tax write-offs of other businesses, which makes running a dispensary, for example, hellaciously expensive because you're paying an effective three times tax rate. So you're paying three times as much tax as any other business because you're not allowed to write off the, the expenses. And the reality is, as we see these psychedelics businesses come online, they're going to bang into exactly all those same problems. So I've got chapters in the book on that so that people can start preparing for it. Um, other chapters I cover. So if you want to do, for example, have a licit psychedelic experience, but you maybe don't live in a state that offers that to you, I offer some information on how to go about getting into a study. So there are many happening around the country right now. And if you're a suitable subject, you could sign up and that would give you legal access to whatever study material is being studied. Um, psilocybin right now is, is I think, at phase three door, as is MDMA. Uh, MAPS has been making huge inroads uh, with MDMA. They are at phase three door. So this means thousands upon thousands of patients need to be studied. And so there's opportunity for you there. Uh, additionally, I also have chapters in the book on public initiatives. So if you're politically inclined and maybe you're in a state like mine that's never going to uh, wake up to it on its own, there's information here on how to get a public initiative going and, and what that looks like. And also, I wrote the book to be absolutely a practitioner's manual, but I really took a lot of pain to write it at a level that non-lawyers could absolutely grab this book, 
read it cover to cover. You might not get everything, but it will absolutely elevate your understanding. Um, and then other things in the book as well, uh, there are a bunch of appendices. So for example, there's a timeline. Um, if you're a practicing lawyer, there's actually a model series of questions you could put to an opposing expert witness if you're having to take a deposition in a case. Um, I've got model specimens of different initiatives that actually did exist around the country and, and a whole bunch of other stuff. You know, here, here's a, a question. I've got a couple that pop into mind, but one that, that I, I am so far away from the actual practice of law, I don't know if this is still true, but at one time when I was still practicing, I know there were a lot of laws about the sale and possession and distribution of, of psychedelics, but there wasn't a law about taking one, about swallowing one. Are there laws about ingesting psychedelics? Well, that presupposes you're in possession of it. And yeah, if, if, if you're ingesting it, you're definitely in possession of it. <laughs> so, so they would charge you with possession, but not ingestion. Yeah, they, they, there's, yeah, you make a good distinction there. There's no ingestion crime, but um, if you have it on you, or rather if you have it in you, you have it on you. So yeah, that would be a violation. Yeah, the, the reason I asked, a, a friend of mine, uh, she and her husband were stopped at immigration and he had like uh, 25 tabs of, of acid on, <laughs> on blotter. And, mm. and the immigration guy saw it and went to get his uh, supervisor and this woman's husband just swallowed them all. <laughs> and all 25? All 25. It, there's a long story that obviously came after that. Yeah, but, I bet. But he, he, he's, he's uh, very well now. And uh, this is, you know, 50 years later, 30 years later, I should say. And so all is well. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I don't think he, if they couldn't have proven that he had the acid, you know, uh, they, they, I guess they couldn't have gotten him, huh? Uh, yeah, well, in fairness to that, I, I will tell you in 30 years of law practice, I have never done criminal defense work once, but to my ears, what that sounds like is if they have enough eyewitness evidence and maybe could recreate what was lost, for example, you take a blood sample from the guy, you could definitely go get a court order for a search warrant to take a blood sample. Uh, if there's metabolites in his blood, I think they'd have enough evidence to make the argument. Yeah, yeah, it, it would be. It would be an expensive uh, trip for them to do that, I guess. Uh, you know, a lot of tests involved and all. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, anyhow, absolutely. it was a fascinating story. I, I like the story. Uh, anyway, you know, when, when I was reading your book, and, 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 you know, I was not familiar at the time with any of the international treaties and all, and one of my first thoughts was that if, if I was a member of one of the psychedelic uh, societies at the universities around the country, I get a, a copy for our group and then have a discussion about the international treaties before uh, summer vacation when people are starting to do a lot of traveling, you know, because, you know, that you can get really caught uh, in, in a bad bind if you're not aware of what some of the laws are in other countries. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if you're doing any kind of psychedelic tourism, uh, you definitely want to be doing your research before you book and travel. Um, also, uh, Smart idea. Don't do your research on any computer or accounts of your own. Uh, you will always leave a digital trail behind no matter what you do. So on the off chance you get in trouble, you don't want to have somebody uh, with a search warrant going and grabbing your computers and just adding more evidence on top of that pile against you. So, yeah, educate yourself and preferably do it on somebody else's computer. <laughs> Go to the library. <laughs> or, or somebody you don't like. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh 
I'm kind of out of questions here. Does anybody uh, have anything else? Go ahead, Charles. There are a couple that chimed in. Yuri looked like they uh, they wanted to get in a question, and Ed uh, had to leave but asked a question. Uh, let's find it here. Ed asked, what happened to Glenn R. Boir? Are there other lawyers specializing in mushrooms these days? And then, Yuri, if you want to come back in, you were next up. Um, well, I can't speak about Glenn, but um, as far as other lawyers specializing in mushrooms, I don't know if I'd use the word specialize, but yeah, absolutely. There are lawyers out there doing, I guess, the first starts of mushroom law. That case I mentioned at the start of the conversation that's taking place in Washington right now is exactly that. Uh, but also in fairness, they're not pressing for mushroom. They're pressing for a psilocybin compound that is created by a lab and is somewhere on track for FDA approval. Go ahead, Yuri. Uh, yeah, I was just curious as to um, like, where do like research chemicals fall into like, um, uh, like, um, research chemicals, like, would, do they fall into like category one or two? Like, are they, oh. okay. as- you're asking how they are scheduled under the controlled substances act. Yeah. Fair, fair, good, good question. Um, yeah. Cause sometimes those chemicals are directly on schedule one. Sometimes they might be precursor chemicals that aren't on schedule one. You really have to know what you're looking at and you also have to look at the schedules um, they're all online They're If you, you know, Google DEA or Google's, uh, controlled substances act, you can pull the schedules up and you have to look and see if the chemical you're interested in is on one of those lists. And there's five schedules. You can look at all of them. Um, but that may not be the end of your analysis because if you are acquiring chemicals with the intent of further modifying them for their ultimate expression, that act alone can be considered, Uh, a preparatory act and thus a crime in and of itself. And I'll give you an example. Um, You may see that there are people who um, will import uh, mimosa bark, for example, to extract dimethyltryptamine. That's a common thing. Um, Mimosa importation in and of itself, not illegal. It's just tree bark or ground up tree bark, whatever you want to do with it. Um, also, mimosa bark has legitimate uses. For example, it's a primary component in purple fabric dye. Um, apparently, purple is a very hard color to produce, so there are certain things you need to do it. So if you're importing for legitimate purpose, that's fine. But if you're importing like a bulk amount of mimosa and you're not a known fabric dye company, etc., customs or DEA might be looking at that with the premise that they think you're in a preparatory act for extraction and that can get you in trouble. Sounds like a great shakedown street business. Chris, you're up next. Uh, I was just going to say, how does the uh, federal analog act um, fit into that discussion? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the federal analog act for, for folks who don't know, it's a separate body of federal law that's supposed to kind of like plug the holes in the controlled substances act. And the premise behind it is that if you've got some sort of chemical structure that's like maybe one atom different than the thing that's listed in the Controlled Substances Act, DEA could still deem that analog, that's the quote there, uh, to be the same thing as the prohibited item. 
So the DEA would, in those instances, consider the analog to be just as illegal as the actual chemical it's simulating or modifying. I think Lorenzo just held something up to the screen on point. Um, but part of the problem with the Federal Analog Act, it's not really well-developed law. There's a handful of cases out there which seem to suggest it's enforceable, but it's a body of proof that the DEA or a federal prosecutor would have to really want to grind through in order to make its point because there are defenses to it. So it, it, it can be ultimately a war of chemists, like literally expert witness chemists testifying about what these compounds are. And, and also you defending on what your purpose is with that analog. I, I have to brag about my copy of the Analog Act. It's personally endorsed to me from Sasha Shulgin. Oh, oh. <laughs> he, he sent this back. To, he, he sent this to me shortly after it came out. So, uh, we and that that would make sense because that is exactly Sasha's universe. I mean, to call and be call. I mean, the whole book is just uh, slightly different variations of tryptamines. You're moving, you know, one oxygen over here, one hydrogen over there. And, and, you know, Sasha famously experimented on himself with almost all of it. Uh, man, what an opportunity to have been an intern, huh? Yeah, and, and the way he experimented, too, was, was so uh, remarkable in that uh, he, he never jumped into anything. He took things up just inch by inch by inch, you know, micrograms to, you mm-hmm. know, 100 micrograms, 500 micrograms, or even got up to a milligram. He really did it uh, safely. And uh, I think that's uh, his, his uh, work is to be, uh, you know, emulated the way he did it and not to just jump in and try something right off the bat. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was a scientist scientist in that regard, for sure. Um, and and also, I understood that they tested it in, in multiple different ways. So they would do inhalants, um, nasal insufflated, uh, I think, uh, in some instances, injection and also um, consumed just uh, oral. So, yeah, they, they ran the spectrum of different ways and noticed that there were different effects depending on how you took it. Which and, is, you know, I, I got to meet some of the people that were in his uh, his study group. Uh, we went out to dinner one night and I was the youngest one in the crowd by far. And, and it was, you know, if you looked at it, it you looked like a bunch of uh, maybe university professors or, or uh, librarians and their wives or husbands and, and, you know, a bunch of just old people maybe talking about their ailments. And instead they're talking about, remember the first time we did two CT seven and, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen. And, you know, it, it was, uh, an amazing group of people that did all that work because in P call and T call and those reports in the back, uh, I've seen the originals that uh, Myra typed up for each one of those. It's maybe a paragraph or maybe two paragraphs long. Uh, he has like a dozen or 20 pages of reports from people, uh, very detailed reports he got from everybody. These, this was really well researched. Uh, I, it didn't follow protocols, you know, like uh, today's scientific uh, double blind studies, but these people were serious about what they did. There, there's a lot of solid information in those books. Oh, a- absolutely. And by the way, if I can double back for a moment and continue to tout this idea for a uniform plant and fungi medicine act. Please. What I'm hoping um, legislatures will warm to and the public will warm to is if that model law includes some ability to conduct scientific study. And what I'd love to see, for example, is if 
let's say we're going to have something like Oregon's uh, soon to come psilocybin program. Why not have a provision that if, if you're signing up and getting qualified as a patient, that you could volunteer to provide some anonymous study data? You can, you know, let all the people who are partaking just sort of unofficially and anonymously, so they're protected, be part of the study. And you can do some very basic but very effective research along lines of, you know, race, gender, age, um, what you're taking in what dosage, et cetera, and really generate a citizen's body of data that could be used to great effect uh, on multiple levels, including even by pharmaceutical companies. And, and along those lines, I hadn't thought about that, but if you look at some of Rupert Sheldrake's work, what he's done with uh, citizen scientists, and he has a lot of home experimentation that he's done, like with dogs and stuff like that. And that's, a, you know, if there was a protocol that people were following, uh, I, I bet you would get a lot of, of home scientists, <laughs> you know, giving their anonymous reports. Uh, you know, I've, I've done that in a couple of studies, uh, in an anonymous report, but, uh, I, if you could build that into law, I think that'd be exceptional. Oh, for sure. I'll give you like a, a crazy grassroots example and pardon the pun, cause that'll be a pun in a moment. <laughs> um, I, there are a few, um, cannabis cultivators who I know of that will disseminate some of their fresh genetics out to particular home growers that they trust just so the home growers can report back and, and, you know, explain how the seeds did. So it's a lot like that. Um, you know, also the, the thought occurs to me that um, we commented earlier in the conversation about Harvard warming up to this and starting a new program. And I was really gratified to hear that, but I'm also a teensy bit irked that I'm hoping that the public doesn't start to say, oh, well, Harvard's giving it its imprimatur. It must be okay. Um, which again, that's a good thing, but I don't want the public to perceive that like Harvard somehow single-handedly made this okay or invented this thing. Really all they're doing, at least in my opinion, is validating what we already know and have already been doing. So if they approach it from that perspective, great. But if they're going to try to take credit for it, yeah. Well, of course, knowing Harvard, they will try to take care of it for it. But having lived in the Deep South <laughs> and out here in the West Coast, Harvard doesn't have the cachet out here and down there that it does uh, maybe in the Northeast. So uh, I don't think they can totally co-op it. Uh, yeah, I, I hope I hope not. But, you know, the folks in Washington, D.C. and the policymakers will kowtow to the Ivy League before anybody else. So that's that's my worry. But, and, and, you know, so, uh, psychedelic research really kicked off in Arizona with uh, the, the research that was done with DMT there. You know, that was the first uh, FDA approved study in, in many years. So. Oh, Lorenzo, you're making me give a secret away right now. <laughs> uh, OK, I might as well I'll let this be the, the announcement. Uh, my next book is almost ready to go. Uh, and it's Psychedelic Arizona. I've got, I think, 22 mini chapters on Arizona's psychedelic history. And you're absolutely right, Lorenzo, because that's one of my little mini chapters. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, I've got I've got a, another artist working on a cover for that book right now. I'm hoping I'll have that picture soon. And in the fall, I will be releasing that book. Well, I can proudly say that the youngest of the Haggerty children lives in Arizona. So I'm glad that we have a foothold in that state as well. <laughs> uh, well, listen, uh, give me another connection and I will gladly add another chapter. <laughs> <laughs> I print yet. 
I think he'd rather lay low. <laughs> fair, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, but amongst other fun things, uh, just a preview in the book, um, I discovered that when Timothy Leary was hunting for places to uh, relocate, he was looking here in Arizona in the Chiricahua Mountains, which, weirdly enough, is right down the road from the Peyote Church. They would have been neighbors. Go ahead, Charles. Yeah, I have a question. And then, Ragnar, did I see that you had a question? No, okay. Um, so I want to circle back to the religious freedom decision that you just described, Gary, and I'll preface this with um, I have some healthy skepticism about the religious freedom arguments uh, for two reasons. One is the, the first thing, the, the two things I hear people talk about with religious freedom is, hey, I'm going to found a church so I don't have to pay taxes, or I'm going to found a church so I have access to otherwise uh, illegal medicines. And so it it strikes me that the government does have a legitimate point of view in determining some fact pattern about what establishes a legitimate religious practice, uh, which might be a bias I have, but I'm curious as to, you had mentioned there were some fact issues that were at, at, at stake here. Do they address uh, any kind of government clarification about what constitutes a legitimate religious practice in this context? Um. The DEA denial letter to SoulQuest, so far as I read it, was really just more critical of what SoulQuest had reported to DEA. Um, the letter didn't really go through any sort of explanation of what DEA was preferring to see. And by the way, I do agree with your prefatory comment that, that uh, there is a role for government in this analysis. My criticism of DEA is not that it's involved at all. I think it, it needs to be involved. Um, my criticism is that I don't think it, as the police agency, should be the body deciding what is a religion, what isn't, what is a religious practice, what isn't. I really think they should be sending that up the chain of command, right up to USDOJ. And if, let's say, for example, you have an, uh, an applicant for exemption uh, and they're not sure if it's legit or not, fine, let DOJ investigate. But I think the religious right should be prime over DEA's ability to block access. If DEA has the proof and is willing to go to court to establish it, fine, do that. But don't unilaterally be both judge and jury. I, I don't think that's, that's fair or reasonable behavior by any government agency on this topic. Because it, it does, in a very real sense, leave the decision of religious validity in the hands of a police agency. And that just, to my mind, just sounds crazy and violative of First Amendment principles. Well, what you say makes such excellent logic. Uh, it, it may not uh, hold. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and in fairness, I mean, it, this is my opinion. Uh, nobody's tried this yet in front of the, the courts, so uh, we shall see. But I, I do have another article coming out um, in a couple of weeks really expanding on this. So let, let's see what traction is, uh, is taken from it. Chris is trying to get in. Go ahead, Chris. On the, uh, on the religious freedom angle, uh, are you you're, you're breaking up terribly. I didn't get any of that. I'm so Pause sorry. your video because we can't get your audio, Chris. Yeah. There we go. Is that better? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, night and day. Awesome. Well, that sorry. I'm uh, I'm in a remote office next to a remote lake at the moment. Anyway, um, are you familiar with the uh, the work of the Divine Assembly in Utah? No, no. Do tell. 
Um, so the Divine Assembly is a psilocybin-based church in Utah, uh, and it was formed um, by a former member of the, uh, um, the Utah State Legislature. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, um, he was uh, um, he was a member of the legislature, and like, uh, long story short, encountered a bunch of drug problems and stuff, and ended up being saved by ayahuasca, and then had like this big change of heart, and then went and started a psilocybin church after he left mm-hmm. left the legislature, and he's been very vocal about his intention and desire to like create splinter churches and like further this movement of the religious freedom angle. And he's like really, really super dialed in on that particular like approach to, um, to legalization. Um, and I, I thought that would be, if you weren't familiar, it might be like an, an interesting angle to look into for you or for anyone else who was interested. Oh, for sure. Tell you what, let me give me one second here. Let me just get my keyboard turned on. Um, let me, no, oh, good Lord. Is it on? Yeah, it is on. I'm going to put my office email address here in the, the chat room here. Oop, that was me just pushing buttons at random. Stand by. Okay, there it is. That's that's my office email address. If anybody has any materials on this or, or just wants to reach out, please uh, flood my email. It's totally okay. I'm, I'm collecting stuff and I'm making more episodes for my YouTube channel to talk about these things. I'm happy to do it. Um, so Gary, I'll, I'll send you some links where the founder of that church was interviewed quite nicely. And I think there's two interviews on a Salt Lake podcast. Uh, and I, I would say listen to those first because he really lays out the story of how he started up the church and what's going on. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And doubling back also to a, to an earlier comment, too, about people trying to get these churches started up in order to evade or avoid the impacts of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, yeah, it, that is a problem and a challenge, and and it's been uh, really an ongoing problem as far back as Timothy Leary. You know, Leary also tried to start up a religious organization to get around the problem of access to LSD, and he failed at it. And the problem is it's got to be an actual religion. It's got to have a psychedelic sacrament legitimately kind of at the heart of that religious practice. It can't be incidental and it can't be just some clever way of evading the drug laws in the U.S. So, for example, you can't be, I don't know, a bunch of, uh, I don't know, we'll just say Jewish people because that's my heritage. Uh, you can't be a bunch of Jews and say, you know what, every Thursday after uh, Temple, we'd like to go down to the local coffee shop, have some coffee and drink some coffee together and then drop mushrooms. And that's just part of our religious practice. That's not going to cut it. That that sacraments got to be part of the religious observation. This is why, like you see, for example, the Native American church, which also gets extra credit because of the native component, but the heart of that belief system is the peyote. Same thing with the ayahuasca churches. The heart of their belief system is the ayahuasca. If you didn't have the ayahuasca, you wouldn't have an ayahuasca church. That's what their courts are looking for. So where DEA keeps tripping over this, and again, my opinion, um, is that they're not really good and they're not trained at identifying what religions are. And again, I don't think they even should be in the business of it. Um, But a court can. There are a number of court cases that discuss what the hallmarks of religion ought to include. And it's not any one thing, but the courts are going to be looking for things like, is there a belief system? Is there a moral or ethical code? Are, Are any of these things committed in in some sort of a writing 
Are there doctrines of faith? Is there a belief or contemplation of of the ephemeral? Um, Are you trying to answer sort of the imponderable questions of existence? That kind of stuff. It can't be just a bunch of guys who like dropping shrooms and giggling. You'll never, ever get past the court um, and probably go to jail in the effort, too. So I think it is 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 um, it's duration and or um, numbers of membership uh, included in the analysis of what makes a legitimate religious associate uh, organization, Gary. Oh, for for sure. Uh, for example, there's no court case that has ever supported a religion of one. Um, and that's a big problem, I think, in the psychedelic circles, because psychedelics people uh, who are religious in nature or spiritual in nature. And that's the word tend to be more spiritual than religious. And the problem is when you're talking to the authorities about this, the authorities tend to come from the more mainstream religion. So, you know, chances are you're probably talking to somebody who's Christian or Jewish. And we know Christianity and Jewish or Judaism both have a certain look and feel. You know, there's a place you go and you do your worship a certain way. And there's a certain book that you follow. And there's a guy at the front who speaks to you and tells you certain things in a certain way. But a lot of the psychedelic religions don't necessarily operate with those same optics. And that's a lot of the problem that you bang into is you're trying to convince people who think religion looks only like this. You've got to explain to them, no, it actually can look like a lot of different things. But that's okay too, because there's huge historical record uh, to support a psychedelic religion in that effort. But again, you have to meet those criteria. Um, you know, remember, the, the nation itself was founded in part by people who came over from Europe to worship in a way that was non-mainstream. You know, these people that we call Puritans were really just kind of ultra-Orthodox Christians who were apparently so ultra-Orthodox, they didn't really get along with most of their European brethren in the 1600s. So, you know, they sailed across the ocean to become founders of what would eventually become the United States. And the First Amendment is a hat tip to that history. We have a strong history in the U.S. of minority religions being supported, unusual religions being supported with a variety of different beliefs. It's not all, uh, you know, the Joel Osteens of the world. So uh, I think <laughs> on, on that note, uh, I don't know if we have any other questions here. We've, we've uh, kept you for quite a while, but I, I think that, that the notion of religion, it keeps coming up here. And uh, I hadn't thought of it until you just now brought it up, but uh, the notion of a religion for one, uh, it seems like that should be uh, okay, Uh, you know, because basically I have a religion that nobody else belongs to but me, you know, and I've never, I don't think of it as a religion, but it's my own internal practice and and belief system. Uh, And, and uh, I wouldn't want anybody impeding on that, but uh, I don't have anything that's a part of it as a way of a practice that would impinge on the uh, laws of the United States. Uh, you know, cannabis isn't a part of that <laughs> belief system. It's just what I do, but it's not part of my spiritual practice. So, uh, but a, a religion of one or a spiritual, uh, let's call it a spiritual practice of one should be just as legitimate as a spiritual practice of a hundred thousand. It seems like to me. Oh yeah. Uh, an opinion I share with you for sure. I'm, all I'm saying is there's just no court case out there in the world of psychedelic religions that right. agrees with us. 
let's hope that some young uh, law student is listening to this right now and they become the attorney that uh, moves that through the Supreme Court. <laughs> yep. And another reason why I, I wrote the book uh, was to inspire a next generation of up and coming attorneys to take this and run with it. You well, know, I, I'm I, in my fifties. I've got less than a decade left before I uh, toddle off into the sunset and do more fun things. So I don't know if I will be still in active practice by the time any significant case gets all the way through. I, uh, I hope I am, but we'll, we'll see. I got, I got sworn in uh, to the bar in 1972 and I became one of the uh, original members of the, the ABA's uh, environmental law uh, committee. And at the time, I think there were like a dozen of us. And uh, our first meeting was in Chicago and four or five of us made it. Uh, not long after that, I, I left the practice of law. But the environmental law section of the American Bar Association is huge now. You know, oh, yeah. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of lawyers. So I have no doubt that the Psychedelic Law Association will also be very large uh, by the time you're my age. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. I, I've got to tell you, I, I, I have been very vocal about it. And man, the response I've been getting just announcing it. And it's not even my group. <laughs> so yeah, I, I do suspect as much. And I think it's like the old adage goes, um, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree would be right now. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. And, and right now is even probably better than 20 years ago. This, the, the time is right for these trees to really take root and grow. So uh, I don't think there's been a better time to uh, see the insight of the war on drugs. At least I think I'm going to live to see it uh, declared an end. So, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, something we should all be encouraged about. I, I do plan to live to be a hundred though. So don't get too excited. <laughs> Uh, I haven't made that plan yet for myself. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> Depends how I'm feeling. <laughs> I just want to see how all this story ends. You know, I'm really excited about it. I, I you know, I, I at least want to live to the end of the pandemic. So I figure I got at least 15 years ahead of me, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. On that, on that happy note, I, I guess I'm getting silly now, so we should call it a night. But uh, Gary, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and. Uh, for uh, staying in touch. And uh, as things progress, I, I hope you'll be willing to come back and uh, bring oh, us up to date again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime. I, and I mean that um, I'm staying out there on the fringes, trying to, you know, get past the bleeding edge to see what's beyond. And I am happy to come back and share what I see. And I'll put a link to your YouTube channel in the program notes too, because there's a lot of great information in your YouTube channel as well. Oh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. And and for those of you who don't know, um, the YouTube channel pretty much picks up where the book leaves off. Um, it's the same name, Psychedelic Alex, which is just my fancy Latin phrase for law of psychedelics. And the the show is just me doing really a variety of things. But at the heart of it, it's trying to explore the legal landscape of psychedelics from every possible every possible perspective. So yeah, there's a lot of law talk, but there's also a lot of not law talk. I have professionals of all different types who come on the show. Um, a lot of them from the cannabis world, because we can really readily analogize to what a psychedelics world would look like by looking at what cannabis is doing. So they come on and we talk about all the different business challenges um, and, and different ways to structure it and, and what people do with it. Uh, and I'll give you an example. In a couple of weeks, I'm, I'm bringing on a, a friend of mine who's an insurance broker. And we're going to be talking about the world of insurance, because if you want to have a business, 
you really want to have insurance. And oh boy, when we're talking psychedelics, that is such a challenge, but not insurmountable because there are policies out there you can get. So we'll be talking about that. I would love to read the writers on that policy. Oh, no kidding. Um, yeah, Danielle Hernandez, who's going to be coming on doing the interview, she is deep, deep, deep in it because she sees the potential and, and it's a market that will make people money. Not to keep you on here, but I would have to presume that the retreat centers are doing some kind of insurance, um, some kind of extended liability. Oh, well, you know, let's chat about that for a moment. And I don't mind if you keep me here. Uh, Lorenzo might mind. <laughs> yeah, well, Lorenzo might, but I'll, I'll be quick and then we, we can go. Um, I would not assume that, folks. Don't assume any retreat center has insurance. And if it does, don't assume it's the right insurance. Let me give you a real example here. I've never yet in my life seen an insurance policy that failed to contain a particular clause that says, hey, if you're engaged in some sort of illegal activity that gives rise to this claim, uh, you don't have coverage. That's a violation of your insurance policy. So while sure, you may have been paying us premiums all these years, and we really appreciate that you did that, uh, you did an act that's not covered. So sorry, you're on your own. That's a thing that's happened to many, many people, particularly in the world of cannabis. And the reason is, sure, they went and got things like CGL insurance, which is commercial general liability insurance, which, if you don't know, is like the most common type of insurance a business gets. Um, those policies don't contain coverage for, uh, example, cannabis e events or incidents. But there are insurance companies out there who will write policies that allow it, but you have to ask for it. So if you're looking at a retreat center, you would not at all be out of line asking to see their policy or at least the declaratory sheet behind their policy. Because, yeah, if you're planning on attending, thinking, well, if something bad happens, at least I can sue somebody and an insurance policy will cover my injuries. Maybe not. Don't assume. Yeah, I think I was thinking more outside the United States, uh, you know, places in, um, in Latin America where there are legalities, although that's a whole other kettle of fish. Oh, oh, for sure. And then, and then what do you do? Let's say, for example, that, uh, I don't know, you're going to retreat in Nicaragua, you know, pick a country you want. Um, but let's pick, let's pick Costa Rica or somewhere with a stable government. Okay. Costa Rica. That's fair. You might still have to go to Costa Rica to fight that fight, to file that claim. And you might be dealing with a Costa Rican insurance company or some other foreign insurance company. So yeah, amongst other things, besides making sure there is a policy that covers for what you did, you also want to look at things like jurisdiction, where are you going to have to go have that fight if you have to have that fight? Fascinating stuff. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it can be the stuff of nightmares, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, but it's the stuff that makes wonks really happy. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and you know, I, I see these psychedelic retreats being advertised all the time. And it's weird. Like over the last six or seven months, right alongside that, I've seen a spike in the number of articles talking about the numbers of sexual assaults taking place in some of these receipts uh, retreats, excuse me. Um, so yeah, you know, if, if you're a, a single woman, for example, or a single guy going off to one of these retreats and maybe you're going alone and you don't know who you're dealing with, those are things to worry about too. Yeah. There are a lot of risks involved here in uh, dealing with these substances. And that's again, one good reason for some regulation. Uh, you know, we, yeah. we can't just have everybody going off willy nilly and, and, I, I was never one in favor of a lot of regulation, but I can definitely see the need for it in uh, in these areas now. 
Yeah. And I, I don't view it as regulation that needs to come into place so much as just sensible consumer safety. I, I think there's a balance to be struck. You, you know, look, you, you want to go take a normal prescription drug. You still have to go to a doctor. You still have to get a prescription. When you go to the pharmacy to pick it up, the pharmacist is always there to talk to you about taking the drug and to answer any of your questions you have about it. So if that's okay for us to go get our penicillins and whatever else, why would we flinch at that for psychedelics? I I think getting a base amount of education to the end user is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. And and if that's what regulation is aimed at, I'd be comfortable in that world because it means access and safety. And those are the two things everybody wants. And, and, and you're right. That's what we want. And of course, there's the, the other side of that pancake where they overregulate. And, you know, we have these, these friends that come in on the Thursday uh, psychedelic salons here, and they're living in Marrakesh right now. And they can go to the pharmacy and buy opioids, you know, anything they want. But, but cannabis is Ill- illegal <laughs> because of the war on drugs. So, yeah. you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of politics involved in this as well. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I, I keep thinking if you really want to understand modern geopolitics, you need to look at the opium wars. Hmm. Um, for sure. I mean, if you want to understand uh, the Chinese ethos about how it, it responds to the rest of the world, look at the opium wars. Uh, and also, if you want to understand the Chinese policy on, on drugs, because they're very, very harsh on drugs in China, look at the opium wars. And, hmm. and if you don't know that history, jump on YouTube. There are tons of videos to talk about it. But in a nutshell, basically, uh, the English government literally went in guns blazing, shooting its way into China to force China to open for the purpose of buying and consuming England's opium supply. And the English government and a bunch of English merchants were dedicated to getting the Chinese population hooked on opium and succeeded. So, you know, you're coming uh, 100 plus years after that. The echoes of it still reverberate today. And it was pure economics. It was they had to sell, push the opium so they could have the ship's hulls full going into China so they could carry the tea back out, you know. And so it was all about filling, filling as fuck cargo. It wasn't about anything else. Yeah. And it's actually worse than the tea, Lorenzo. It was their gambit to get their silver back. Yeah. Here's what happened. The English were were trying desperately to trade with China, but there was almost nothing the Chinese wanted from the English. But the English wanted a lot of Chinese goods. You know, the silks and spices were massively profitable. So amongst the few things that the English were able to find that the Chinese were willing to trade for included British silver. And so they were depleting their their coffers. And this was the currency of the time. So it's like, you know, emptying out the gold reserve from Fort Knox. So desperate to get the silver back because it was impairing England's ability to engage in commerce elsewhere around the world. They desperately tried to find a way to find something the Chinese would trade the silver back for. And it turned out opium happened to be the winner. And what a great uh, benefit. It's also highly addictive. And boy, they knew what to do at that point. They just rammed opium right down the throats of the Chinese. And that's how they were getting the silver back. And when the Chinese finally were like, hey, wait a minute. You're, you're crippling our population and really damaging our nation here. We're stopping the opium trade. The British went in with guns blazing. And All- the coercive spirit of opium continues in the modern parlance as well. The parallels are incredible. 
Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you look at the development of all the drug laws right up to today, it all started with opium. All of it. That's your next book after Arizona. Oh, God. <laughs> it's a good book, man. I know. But that, that, one, that one actually like that's got the that's got awards potential in it. <laughs> uh, well, I will consider <laughs> that's got National Book Award on it if you do it right. Okay. Well, uh, me and Michael Pollan, I, I, I would like to unseat Pollan as the guy. So, maybe we'll... well, there, there's going to be an oscillation because he can't have a book come out every year. So you can come out in the years that his books aren't coming out. You know what? He can though, because that's his full-time job. I'm still doing the law practice. This is my side gig. <laughs> but, but kidding aside, I, I really would like to ultimately morph away from my law practice so I can do this kind of stuff more full-time. Um, and currently the, the track I'm on is to try to, um, get, a, these clients and pipeline built so that I can at least bring this work into the firm, let my other partners and associates do it so I can get back out there and keep sort of, you know, preaching the gospel, so to speak. So hopefully over the next few years, you will see that transition happen before your very eyes, but we'll see what happens. Well, considering the fact that you're a full-time practitioner, you're doing a great job getting the word out too. So we do appreciate that. Uh, that's the benefit of having no kids, by the way. <laughs> My wife and I decided to stop at House Cats, and that leaves a degree of free time in the evenings. And this is how I spend it. <laughs> but I, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to our next visit. And uh, best of luck with this book. And uh, as soon as the next book comes out, be sure to let us know. Oh, for, for sure. And my pleasure. And like I said, I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime you want me. Well, listen, everybody, till the next time, keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> and for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>